Some historians will tell you that George Washington gave Maryland the name Old Line State, meaning a line of soldiers, the Maryland Line. But why? And Maryland isn't only associated with the name Old Line State. There's another line that Maryland has a connection to, the Mason-Dixon Line. So what is the story of Maryland and all of these lines? On this podcast, I share these stories. It's quarter miles travel where the adventure begins when you reach into your pocket. There's a story behind every quarter design, a story that can take you on an adventure of your own. From one-of-a-kind landmarks to hometown heroes, start your journey with Anita, one quarter mile at a time. Life is meant to be Maryland earned the nickname the O-Line State during the American Revolution. On the reverse side of the Maryland State Quarter is the design of the Maryland State House and the inscription, the O-Line State. On this episode, I explore how Maryland became known as the O-Line State. Maryland's regiment, the Maryland Line, they were soldiers of the Continental Army and the result of their actions independence. They held the line. They were brave, they were determined, and most of all, they were committed to victory. And their sacrifices were noted, and they were honored with the name O-Line. To help me tell the stories, I asked Alex Lowenstein, Museum Learning Manager at the Maryland Center for History and Culture in Baltimore, to come on board and join me as we sort out all of the details of what happened during this time in Maryland to give them this nickname. Here I asked Alex to start at the beginning and tell us how it all happened. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of an interesting story. Um, so the nickname is attributed to uh, the American Revolution and the old line, it really is talking about the first incarnation of the Maryland line or the Maryland regiments that fought uh, in 1775, and then primarily at the Battle of Brooklyn on August 27, 1776. So it really kind of comes to that specific battle, the Battle of Brooklyn. So at this battle, uh, it's one of the early battles of the American Revolution. Uh, the the Continental Army is on uh, Long Island in the Brooklyn area, and the British are advancing, and and they kind of go around the the uh, they kind of go to the side of some troops and are attacking them. Uh, on the heights uh, in, uh, near Brooklyn, and there are about three to five hundred Maryland soldiers who attacked the advanced uh, attacked the advancing British multiple times, and that allowed the uh, primary American force that was on the heights of Gowanus to escape to the American defenses uh, in Brooklyn or at Brooklyn Heights, and so in that, about two hundred and fifty six Marylanders were killed or captured, which was one fourth of the regiment. Um, so it was this major early action where Maryland soldiers, um, you know, kind of showed bravery. And Washington supposedly said, 
good God, what brave fellows uh, I must lose this day. And then he later said uh, that the Maryland line, the efforts uh, were an hour more precious to American liberty than any other. So it really comes from that battle, the Battle of Brooklyn. How the name becomes the state name is, is not really clear because it was only in conversational language in the early 19th century. Um, in 1856, uh, a Maryland senator, you know, referenced the Maryland line. He said the old Maryland line uh, in 1857. Uh, the old Maryland line was referenced as a unit rather than old, like parentheses old uh, and then end parentheses Maryland line. It was later referred to in 1857 as parentheses old Maryland line and parentheses. Um, but then like by the 20th century, it became a popular name for businesses. And so the first written text that we know of Maryland being referred to as the old line state came in 1929 uh, with Matthew Page Andrew in his book, uh, History of Maryland, Province and State. So that's kind of the first written text. And then it was later adopted as the, as the state name. So, so when we say line, uh, we're talking about a line of soldiers, not an actual line that would be on a map that differentiates like one state from another state. Right. So, so in that term, a line is going to be a regiment or a regiment of uh, soldiers. So, yeah, the 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 old line is referring to the first incarnation of the Maryland uh, line or the Maryland regiments during the American Revolution. The soldiers who fought, their story certainly cannot be understated. I asked Alex if he would share some information about the war and about the soldiers who fought for the Maryland line, as well as Maryland soldiers who fought in other areas. Yeah, so uh, what's interesting is Maryland is heavily involved, but there's actually no major fighting in Maryland. Um, so it, it's kind of interesting when you look at Maryland's involvement. But there are a lot of really cool stories that came out of Maryland during the Revolutionary Period. So some of the earliest soldiers who are uh, sieging Boston in 1775 uh, are from Maryland. And basically Congress is saying, well, we need to uh, raise up basically rifle regiments. So people who live in the backwoods, people who know how to hunt uh, and, and be able to, who are sharpshooters. And the places you were gonna find those were gonna be uh, the backwoods of, or the Western counties of Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia. So early on, you have Maryland riflemen being sent up to Boston. Um, but the Maryland regiment that fought at uh, the Battle of Brooklyn, uh, they became fairly well known. Uh, they were always put as like the vanguard. George Washington trust them to, to make sure that, uh, you know, they did their job. Um, but as the, Mer as the uh, revolutionary forces are retreating through New Jersey in 1776, the Maryland regiments are just getting decimated just uh, from uh, people leaving, from injuries, from uh, people being killed in battles. But and so there weren't very many Marylanders who crossed the Delaware in December 1776, uh, the famous Washington Cross in Delaware. There weren't very many Marylanders there. But what's really cool is as the British are advancing through New Jersey, they're heading towards Philadelphia, which is the capital of the uh, 13 colonies at that point. And the Continental Congress leaves Philadelphia and they come to Baltimore and they, they basically set up at Henry Fight's Tavern. But after Washington crosses Delaware, Continental Congress realizes that, all right, we want to reprint the Declaration of Independence again. We want to, you know, the, things are kind of turning our way. So we want to have some, you know, we kind of want to celebrate it. 
So they reprint the Declaration of Independence and they had it printed with their names on it. But what's the coolest thing about that is they contract with a, a printer. Uh, her name is Mary Catherine Goddard. Uh, she is a printer. She's the first postmaster, female postmaster general of Baltimore. And she's the only woman to have to appear on the Declaration of Independence. But what's really fascinating about it is if you look at what she normally prints, she would normally put M.K. Goddard, right? So her initials and her last name. But on the Declaration of Independence, she puts her entire full name. So she understood the significance of this moment. And so when you look at it, when you look at the Goddard print of it, you can see her name at the bottom saying printed in Baltimore by Mary Catherine Goddard. Um, and so it's such a fascinating story and, and one where, you know, we look at it and we're like, we know why she did that, or we think we know why she did that because of the significance of, you know, the reprinting and the names at the end. Um, and she's also putting herself at risk because if the American Revolution fails, not only were the signers going to be uh, tried and hanged, Mary Catherine Goddard would also be tried and hanged as well as a traitor. Um, so that's a really, really cool story uh, about the American Revolution in Maryland. And throughout the war, um, troops are going north and south. They're passing through Maryland all the time. Uh, in 1777, uh, the British sail up the Chesapeake to go up to, uh, and they land at the head of Elk, which is in Maryland, uh, and they march to Brandywine. Um, and then the Maryland troops are sent farther south, and they're almost, again, decimated at the Battle of Camden, where they lose about a third of their men. Um, but then they, they kind of dis distinguish themselves again at the Battle of Cowpens. Um, and that is kind of one of the last... I don't want to say the last major battle of that Marylanders are involved in, but it's it's one of the like big moments towards the end of the war for Maryland soldiers. I wanted to know more about Mary Catherine Goddard. Who was this woman who in the 1700s stepped forward to not only place herself in the journey to independence, but to become Baltimore's postmaster from 1775 to 1789? But she is also responsible for printing, and not only just printing, but printing a very important influential document, which changes the colonies forever. I asked Alex to fill me in on who exactly was Mary Catherine Goddard. Being a female at that time, too, when when you don't see a lot of women stepping up and, and doing that, um, she she came from a basically a family of printers. Uh, they uh, the, the family originally, I believe they're from, uh, like Providence, Rhode Island. And so the family prints, uh, the Pro Providence Gazette, but then her brother leaves Rhode Island to go to Philadelphia to start a paper. Um, and then he also, uh, goes to, he basically, he, he also sets one up in Maryland, but he's not very good at running a paper. Um, so she kind of has to come up and clean up after him. So she takes over the printing of the, the Maryland Journal and she, you know, starts printing. Uh, she's, not, uh, she's not shy about what she's printing. She's really printing a lot about the American Revolution. She's printing, uh, she is kind of telling both sides of the story, but she, she is a patriot. And so uh, she, uh, you know, offered her press to, to the Continental Congress when they came in and said, you know, if you need, you know, stuff printed, I'm happy to do it. And, and they contracted with her. And what's really interesting is for 14 years, she was the postmaster general of Baltimore. But what's 
really kind of, I don't know, a, a frustrating moment of history is, so after the American Revolution has won, after, the, after it's over, uh, she is removed as the postmaster of Baltimore because the, uh, the postmaster general of the United States basically said something along the lines of, being a postmaster general required more traveling than a woman could undertake. But the fact that she had already been doing it for 14 years, you know, uh, it, it's kind of this, you know, angry moment. Um, but what's really cool about it is at the same time that that's happening, the city of Baltimore and business people in Baltimore are uh, furious that she's being removed. And they start a petition demanding that she's reinstated. Uh, they, they start talking to everyone they can. Um, it's, un it's unsuccessful, but uh, what's really cool is like at this moment, you have this entire city of Baltimore, which isn't a very large city at the time, uh, basically coming to bat for Mary Catherine Goddard, uh, you know, after she was removed from the position. Um, so she still had a printing shop afterwards um, and she, she died in 1816, but the city loved her. Um, she was beloved by the city and, and people always uh, uh, kind of looked out for her. You know, what's fascinating about that story too, Alex, is that you just don't think of women during that time holding any type of position like that, that would have that type of prestige because I would think during that time to be a postmaster general would be really a big deal. Yeah, it would have been, it would have been a, a major position in the city. Um, it would have been one of power. Uh, it would have been one of respect. And so, yeah, the fact that she held it um, kind of goes to show, you know, what people thought of her, but what they also thought of her skills, that she was so skilled in printing and, and running the Maryland Journal um, that she was the, you know, they, she was also the postmaster. They, they decided to make her that. So um, she's a really cool, cool story from the, from the American Revolution. But there are plenty of really cool stories uh, of, of Maryland soldiers or just Marylanders in general um, from that time period. She was removed from her position as postmaster. I asked Alex if he would share the story behind that. The postmaster general uh, at the time was was uh, Samuel Osgood, and he basically was like, "Well, it's more traveling than than a woman could undertake." But it, it, it's kind of frustrating historically when you're like, "Well, she had already been doing the job." Um, but it was really uh, a lot of people think it probably wasn't much of it. It, it may have been about gender. Also, it may have been about, you know, the postmaster general was a political appointee. Yeah. And so, you know, people are appointing friends or appointing people who supported certain, you know, elections, et cetera, like that, uh, et cetera, and things like that. So they think, you know, we think maybe it was gender, but it was also the political aspect as well. Alex mentioned that there are many great stories of people from Maryland who made a difference during the war. I asked him if he would share some stories of soldiers Maybe their names have been left from history. Maybe there are people with little known facts about them. I asked him if he had anyone in particular that he could share a story about their bravery during the American Revolutionary War. And so we've been looking for stories of, of people, of soldiers who may have been left out. And this is a known story and it's one that we're including, but it's of a soldier named Thomas Carney. And he is... Uh, he is a, a black uh, free man in, in, in uh, Maryland. Um, he's born in 1754. He enlists in the Maryland militia in 1777. 
And so um, he fought at the Battle of Germantown. Uh, he was in Wilmington, Delaware with the rest of the Maryland line uh, in 1777, 1778. And then uh, he later enlisted from the militia. He moved over to the formal regiments. Uh, so the, the Continental soldiers from Maryland, he did that in 1778. But what's really fascinating about him is he became one of the only no, he became one of only four known black corporals in the entire Continental Army. He is, and, and I should note the other three corporals were in a all black regiment. And so he is the only black man who is a corporal in a, you know, mixed regiment. And so his story is just, his story is just fascinating. Uh, uh, and, and the fact that he was able to join and that he rose up to a rank of corporal um is is really cool so his name is thomas carney um like i said uh and and he he kind of served throughout the war well and and survived it he, he didn't get killed during the war right he survived the war he he uh every time he was offered a chance to re-enlist uh he enlisted uh or he re-enlisted um he's one of the few uh i don't want to say one of the few but he's he's one of the small number of black men in maryland who served um, but the fact that he got up to the rank of corporal is is fascinating and and kind of shows, you know, one, how hard it was for black men, uh, for black soldiers to get up to the ranks of corporal or or even, you know, just a, a kind of non-commissioned officer due to their race. But the fact that he did it is is um, is just outstanding. And he did it, like I said, outside of a he did it in a regiment that was integrated and it wasn't an all black regiment. But do you know of any, uh, any stories of any battles that he fought in any particular thing that he did that was kind of outstanding? So we don't know exactly what he did. We, we know what battles he fought in. We don't know if there's anything like what got him the rank of corporal. We do know that he fought at the Battle of Germantown uh, in October of uh, 1777. And we know that he since he joined a, a Maryland Continental Regiment in 1778, he's, he fought uh, probably down at uh, uh, Guilford Courthouse. Uh, he fought um, probably in Camden, uh, maybe Cowpens. Um, so we know that he fought down there. At the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, he bayoneted seven soldier, he bayoneted seven enemy soldiers uh, when, when the Maryland troops charged in. Um, and he, uh, he was apparently first to the charge and always brave uh, um, under, uh, the, under charge. But also uh, he, uh, Thomas Carney, uh, at the Battle of 96, he actually helped, he carried his commander on the soldiers who was, his commander was wounded. He carried his commander on, the, on his shoulders to a surgeon. Bravery and compassion. So I wanted to know more. Certainly there were more soldiers that he would have stories about. I, I will note that a lot of the stories that museums have and that we have are going to be uh, officers um, because they were the ones who were going to be keeping some of the best records. Um, but uh, one officer we have, we know of, his name is Otho Holland Williams, and he was a merchant from Frederick, Maryland, uh, and he was an early volunteer with the, with the Maryland uh, Continental Forces. He, he actually becomes one, he, he goes up and is one of those uh, early riflemen that I talked about earlier uh, that come from Maryland. So Frederick, Maryland, for those that don't know, is, is in Western Maryland. Um, so it's kind of the, the Western part 
of the state. I mean, at that time, it was very wooded. Uh, you know, a lot of people were kind of backcountry there. Um, but he becomes a major in, in a rifle regiment. And at the Battle of Fort Washington, he is uh, shot and, and wounded. Uh, he's actually shot in the groin and he's, he's captured. Um, but what's really cool, and one reason why I highlight his story is in our collection, we actually have the bullet that wounded him. And we also have his officer's commission that was in his pocket that has blood on it from when he was wounded. Um, and we have both of those in our collection. Uh, but he's interesting because he was he was captured. He was a prisoner uh, for the British until 1778 um, when he rejoins the the uh, Maryland uh, regiments as a commander of the 6th Maryland Regiment. And he he's most known for his uh, his role at the Battle of Utah Springs in South Carolina when he led the 6th Maryland Regiment uh, in a bayonet charge and surprised and forced the British troops out of their camp and actually pushed them back uh, several miles. Um, and so uh, we have, uh, so he's, he's a pretty interesting story um, and someone who, you know, kind of was a merchant and then became uh, a commander and, and one that a lot of people, you know, recognize, but also he's not a story that a lot of people know of. A lot of people don't know um, of Otho Hahn Williams. And surviving that gunshot. Right, and surviving that gunshot. But which, uh, uh, you know, that 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 kind of leads into like the next individual I want to say, because um, when you think about uh, wounded people being wounded and stuff. Um, so General. Uh, so Roger Nelson, he was a he uh, took part in Colonel William Washington's dragoons. He was part of the dragoon and he was captured at uh, the surrender of Charleston, South Carolina. Um, and then after his relief, release, he served in the Maryland line, but he was supposedly wounded 16 times during the American Revolution. Whoa. <laughs> right. Um, so I don't know, I don't know very much about like the wounding, but he was supposedly wounded 16 times. Um, and, and, uh, but he rose to the rank of Brigadier General and he lived, he, he died of old age, I believe. Now that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, right. Like you, you don't expect, you don't expect that even in modern, you know, modern times, you don't expect someone to 16 wounds. Exactly, exactly. You just think of uh, the type of, um, you know, um, ammunition that was used back then. You think about, you know, the medical care. So that's, that's pretty, pretty phenomenal. I asked Alex, can you share any stories about George Washington, the American Revolution, and Maryland? How can we connect all three? So George Washington, uh, he, you know, He's not from Maryland, but you know he he lives in Virginia, very close to the border. So he has a lot of connection with Maryland. Um, you know, throughout the American Revolution, he's passing through Maryland a lot. Uh, uh, you know, as the French army lands in in Rhode Island, I believe uh, later in the war, they're marching through Maryland, and Washington is meeting up with them. Um, living close to Virginia, he would have you know spent a lot of time. Uh, he he may have traveled up to Maryland a lot. We do know for a fact, though, that in the Maryland Gazette, which was a newspaper, that in 1761, he actually put out a runaway ad for four enslaved men uh, who ran away from, from uh, his plantation. Um, and, and that is, I believe Mount Vernon has that exact newspaper um, listing that. But during the French and Indian War, uh, when he was a colonel in, in the Virginia State Militia, he used Cumberland, Maryland as a headquarters. 
Uh, and then he also later used that cabin slash uh, that cabin and headquarters uh, in 1794 during the Whiskey Rebellion. So Cumberland, Maryland is pretty far out. Uh, more, it's kind of closer to West Virginia, uh, the Ohio area in like Western Pennsylvania. So it's pretty far out there. Um, but it's, if you were going up to Pennsylvania or Western Pennsylvania during that time, you would have passed through Cumberland. Um, but like I said, uh, so, you know, during the war, he passed through Maryland a bunch. But what's really interesting is after the American Revolution uh, in 1783, uh, the Continental Congress, um, but, but basically Congress, uh, they are meeting in Annapolis, Maryland. Um, and that's where Washington resigns his commission as a, resigns his military commission, uh, giving up power of the army back to the government. And that is seen as kind of a big moment um, because there, there was always fear of, well, this one man has power of the army. Is he going to use it to kind of take over? But he resigns his commission, gives up power of the army, gives it back to the government. Um, and so that happens in Annapolis, Maryland. Yeah, and, and I believe the Maryland State House has his original, uh, the basically the document he he you know he wrote giving up his his power. Um, he uh, so during the West Rebellion, like I said, he he in uh, that like uh, that is 1794. He uh, comes back through Maryland. Um, to to take control of the army again and and put down the Whiskey Rebellion, which was a 600 person rebellion in Western Pennsylvania, uh, where they were protesting a whiskey tax. Um, but Washington compiles about 13,000 militiamen, uh, many of them from Maryland, to uh, go and put down this rebellion of 600 people. And that, that large number was mostly just a show of force to show like, we're not gonna allow this to happen. Um, but he does that uh, uh, later. And then the first two Washington monuments ever built are actually in Maryland. Uh, the first is located in Middletown, Maryland on South Mountain. And the second is in Baltimore, uh, actually right nearby the museum. Um, and that was built, uh, construction started in 1814 for that. There are many, many stories of the brave soldiers from Maryland who fought in the American Revolutionary War. And a visit to Prospect Park in New York City, you will find the Maryland Monument, placed there to honor the more than 250 Maryland troops who were killed during the Battle of Brooklyn. Alex tells us about the monument, and he encourages us to go there for a visit. It's really cool about that. And, and if people are in New York, I would suggest they go check it out because there's a monument to the Maryland troops. and huh? and uh, who fought at the Battle of, of Brooklyn. And that monument is basically exactly where they were during the battle. So if you're there, and I've, I've been there, you can look out and kind of see like so, somewhat of the terrain that they would have seen uh, when they were there in, in uh, 1776. Um, so, so the monument in Prospect Park uh, uh, is restored by the, the Commission on uh, Maryland Military Monuments, and then also the Maryland Historical Trust. They take they kind of put money to restore that. So that's in Prospect Park in New York. We've talked a lot about the Maryland troops and the African-Americans that were involved in the war and the soldiers and their involvement in the war. But I wanted to know what was going on with the Native Americans. How were they influenced or how were they affected by what was going on during the American Revolutionary War in Maryland? Here's what Alex had to say. Really, by the American Revolution, um, most of the indigenous peoples 
uh, who would have lived in Maryland or who had connections to Maryland weren't here. Um, in 1744, the Iroquois Nation, which had incorporated the Algonquin-speaking nations, which were originally in Maryland, um, they gave up all of their land claims to Maryland. So by the American Revolution, um, no indigenous nations have land claims in Maryland because um, the Marylanders had like slowly pushed them out. Uh, so really there's not a lot going on uh, between the indigenous nation, uh, indigenous nations and the, and the, the Maryland colony um, during the time of the American Revolution. Um, compared to, you compare that to other colonies at the time where there's a lot of, especially Pennsylvania, Virginia, you know, even some Southern colonies. In Maryland, it's very quiet, but that's mostly because the Maryland colonists uh, and the Maryland state government had pushed the indigenous nations out and to kind of forced them to give up land claims. Mm. Wow. Yeah, we have a very interesting history here in the... <laughs> yes, yeah, it's... Uh, the more and more I learn about early American history, I, uh, I don't know, it just kind of shocks me more and more yeah. I learn. Yeah, I know, but you know, but it is the history. It's like those things you cannot change. Right. And, uh, I, I'm fascinated to learn about it because it really does paint the full picture uh, instead of, uh, you know, just focusing on one part or a part that feels good or that you're comfortable with or, or in some cases you're not comfortable with, but you want to focus on this good to kind of get all of the information as much as you can. Right. I, I personally, um, you know, I, I, I enjoy making people feel, I don't want to say uncomfortable, but they, you know, making them understand like there's not just a feel good story of America. You know, there's a lot of other stories and a lot of moments in history, uh, especially early on and even more modern times where, you know, uh, it's not, you know, a great, you know, moment, or it's not a great time uh, for for a lot of minorities. Uh, well, I, you know, there are a lot of moments through, both throughout American history, but you know, when I talk about the American Revolution, I like to at least, you know, with groups who come on site, with with you know, if I am talking at lectures or something like that, I really like to highlight the stories of of people who who were involved or were were living through it, but at the end of it, you know are they receiving the same rights as, you know, that are promised in the American Revolution? Are they receiving the, the you know, are they, are they receiving what's been promised to them? And, uh, you know, it's interesting, you know, to, to tell those stories. And that's one reason, that's one thing that we're doing in our exhibit is we're really trying to also tell the story of, of Maryland's roles in these wars, but also tell the story of the people who, you know, were involved, but were still, you know, not, um, not not receiving what was promised to them in terms of freedom and economic independence. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I like that. I like that approach to, you know, to really identifying not only just, you know, certain periods that we kind of think about that, you know, may, like you said, may, may feel uncomfortable, but really kind of getting the whole story because I always say too that there were people just like us. They had full lives. Uh, something was going on every day, every minute for them, just like in our lives. And so often we just think about maybe something that's pulled out um, historically. So it's great when we can do research and find out more about them than just one particular incident or a particular time or that kind of thing. Early in the podcast, I mentioned that there was another line that Maryland is associated with a line that separates the states of Maryland and Pennsylvania. There was a long-running dispute 
between the provinces of Maryland and Pennsylvania due to a surveying error by Captain John Smith in 1608. Now, this dispute had lasted for about 80 years, and it was all around about 4,000 miles of territory that was uncertain as to who actually owned it. No one knew who was supposed to pay taxes. You know that would be a big thing. And there were small fights and small skirmishes that broke out in regards to who owned it. But in 1760, two men from England were commissioned to solve this problem. They were surveyors, and they came over. One man had the last name of Mason, the other man had the last name of Dixon. Mason, Dixon, and Line is associated with Maryland. Alex tells us more about what happened and why. There was disputes between Maryland and Pennsylvania about the borders. Uh, and this was early in the uh, 1700s, late 1600s, 1700s. Uh, basically, the, the Charter of Maryland said that uh, Maryland extended from the northern bounty of the Virginia colony all the way up to the 40th parallel, which is in, which is in Pennsylvania. So for uh, decades, um, uh, Maryland and Pennsylvania were actually kind of warring with each other uh, over uh, the border. And so in 1768, Charles Mason and Jeremiah Dixon, uh, they finished their survey of the Pennsylvania-Maryland boundary line. Um, but what's interesting is for, for years and years, it was just the boundary line between Pennsylvania and Maryland. But as you get closer to the Civil War, it is the demarcation of a slave state, Maryland, and a free state of Pennsylvania. So for enslaved individuals who are um, you know, running away to freedom or escaping to freedom, the Mason-Dixon line was the marker of freedom. You were now entering a free state of Pennsylvania where you would have the ability to live in the city. You wouldn't be enslaved anymore. Um, though there were uh, uh, enslaved in, uh, individuals who were captured by uh, well, what we term slave catchers uh, um, around the Civil War, but it really became that demarcation between free uh, and enslaved. Mm. So definitely something to celebrate for the, for the people that were enslaved and making their way there. Right, yeah. The moment you cross Pennsylvania, uh, that the, the moment you cross the Mason-Dixon line, you were uh, free. Um, you were no longer enslaved. So do you know any more about the two men, Mason and Dixon? Yeah, so um, they were surveyors. Uh, they they um, basically they're kind of working with uh, the two states to, to really just kind of figure out where the borders are. Um, and so they basically go on this, this you know, backcountry walk through uh, Pennsylvania, Maryland, looking at maps, looking at where each, uh, you know, um, state is supposed to be, you know, marking, and, and they're putting down boundary stones, which are, are pretty, pretty large stones. But um, I believe Charles Mason, a lot of his early talent came from astronomy. So his experience with astronomy really helped go into um, surveying and figuring out the location because you did have to use the celestial navigation um, and so he is using those skills to to help trek through. And so, um, and I don't know too much about uh, uh, Jeremiah Dixon, um, but again, I believe he was also kind of had that astronomy background because most surveyors would have had an astronomy background because you would have to have read the stars. 
And, and what's that, do you know if there was any like conflict with, oh, this should be Pennsylvania or this should be Maryland that they experienced as they were trying to make those um, uh, decisions about where the line would actually be? I don't think they specifically uh, were, were kind of facing that. I think they were mostly just tasked with, you know, uh, marking the line, basically marking a straight line. And, and, and then it was kind of up to the, you know, Pennsylvania and Maryland to accept it um, because they were, uh, they basically needed to figure out this border because the two states were, were, you know, kind of informally fighting with one another over the borders. Um, and so the, the kind of uh, uh, British, uh, the British government in a sense is like, all right, well, we need to come up with a line. So they, they worked with uh, Mason Dixon, who were both from England, to you know create this this border. It would be quite significant as to where the border would be if one state is free and one state is not free for you know enslaved people. Yeah, and and that was you know there were issues later on about that where um, you know enslaved individuals would think they would would cross to the freedom, but they might not actually be there yet. Um, but that's why a lot of the people who worked, if they if enslaved individuals took the Underground Railroad, they knew exactly where the, the demarcation was. So they knew the moment they crossed in, they, they were gonna be free. Um, so working with people who had experience with the border really helped a lot of enslaved individuals uh, uh, identify that moment of, of crossing the border. Two families in dispute over boundaries of land. The Penn family of Pennsylvania and the Calvert family of Maryland. Charles Mason and Jeremiah Dixon were called in to solve it. The two men started in 1763, believing it would only take two to three years to solve the land debate. It actually took five years. They were known in England as the masters of surveyors and astronomers. It was considered an outstanding scientific and engineering achievement in 1768 when they finished, and it still is today. They used the tools of their fellow British resident, John Byrd, renowned for making scientific instruments. Of five years, that's a long, long time of surveying, and the process would require more than light work of measuring here and there. They, along with a crew of five, started out together, but it eventually grew into 115 other workers, and they were hauling uh, equipment, tents. They had mules with them, cows. Um, it was almost like a small village moving through what would be dense forests for miles and miles through the wilderness, and there would not be any roads or paths or things like that that you may think of along the way, but there was trees and there was brush, mountains, wild animals, and they would also encounter Native Americans who would not be that pleased, of course, with this further pursuit of their land. In order to mark the boundaries, limestone markers as large as five feet were brought over from England. They became known as the crown stones. The stones were placed every five miles to note the boundaries between Maryland and Delaware and Maryland and Pennsylvania which of course was the most recognized border 
separating the free state of Pennsylvania from the slave state of Maryland. After they completed the task, Mason and Dixon went back to England and later came back to America. Their important accomplishment was recognized here in America, but very little recognition or even acknowledgement of them happened back in England. In America, we continue to recognize their work as a simple saying of crossing the Mason-Dixon line. But even here, with such a significant importance, little is known about the men or why the line was actually drawn. It is believed that the nickname of Dixie for Southern states is based on Jeremiah Dixon's name. And another little trivia point here is that they submitted a bill for 3,516 pounds, which today would be over $500,000. Now their world-class accomplishment was priceless, especially for those people seeking freedom. Charles Mason, Jeremiah Dixon, their story is an American story, and it continues to live on. Quartermost Travel would like to thank my guest, Alex Lofstein, and also the Maryland Center for History and Culture. Resources for this episode are from the Maryland Center for History and Culture, the BBC.com. For more information about upcoming exhibits at the Maryland Center for History and Culture, visit their website at mdhistory.org. There you'll also find information on visiting the museum. Today's episode has been brought to you by Alliance Travel Insurance, your travel buddy, to help you with options for every trip that you take. Visit their website at alliancetravelinsurance.com. For a listing of websites mentioned and photographs, visit my website, travelwithanita.com. Thanks for listening today. Make sure you click the subscribe button so that you receive information on upcoming shows. And don't forget to reach in your pocket and pull out that quarter. And Quartermouse Travel will take it from there. We'll turn that quarter into an adventure.